everybody loves a good spooky haunted cemetery story. So uh, it's a story I heard many years ago, and I can't vouch for all the facts, but it's a good story. In 1909, when the Cape Cod Canal was first being built, two cemeteries had to be re relocated. Uh, they were right in the digger's path. Uh, the plan was to remove the headstones, dig up the coffins, and then move them all to the nearby Sagamore Cemetery. Well, it started off fine. The headstones were removed, the coffins were dug up, and the workers used chalk to carefully label each of the coffins so they could be matched back up. But that's when things went bad. The night before the coffins were to be reburied, it rained, and it rained hard. So hard it washed away a lot of the chalk marks. The next morning, the workers found it impossible to match them all back up. They did their best, but still, some of the people were laid back to rest under the wrong headstones. And that's why the Sagamore Cemetery is full of so many unhappy spirits. The voice you just heard is Enterprise Executive Editor John Paradise. I'm Noelle Ananen, and you're listening to the Upper Cape Catch. While we normally cover the most pressing news in Sandwich, Mashpee, Falmouth, and Bourne, we're going to do something a little different today. To celebrate Halloween, we're going to tell four tales in four towns. One mystery in Sandwich. Right before the ball started, he was seen to be fleeing into the woods. One Mashpee legend. Oh my goodness, that is Granny Squatter's broomstick. One unfinished Falmouth story. The smell of cigarettes seemed to follow me wherever I went. And one born tale that is still unfolding today. Do not go in the water, witches, you will melt. <laughs> <laughs> Once upon a time in Sandwich, specifically 1825, a Boston man named Deming Jarvis opened a glass factory, Boston Sandwich Glass Company. Our Sandwich reporter, Katie Goers, found this story from a book, The Ghostly Tales of Cape Cod by Karen Bush Gibson, and adapted from Haunted Cape Cod by Barbara Sillery. This is Katie, retelling it. They used to hold this glassmaker's ball to probably give the, the glassmakers a, a break you know, just a, a chance to celebrate. There was this Frenchman, Adolphe Bonique, came to Sandwich and began working in the glass factory. And uh, he was very talented, but kind of uh, introvert and didn't really participate in anything. Wasn't like socializing with his coworkers and wanted nothing to do with going to the ball. He was said to also be very shy around women. And right before the ball started, he was seen to be fleeing into the woods. But then one night, this masked stranger appeared in the middle of this ball, and he was elegant and in this white silk coat with a ruby glass star pinned on, a blue ribbon across his chest. And he was like great with the women, and the women were fawning all over him. And, and then he just like, left and was like walking down the, the streets of Sandwich, just rapping gently on the doors with his glass cane. And everybody just kind of suspects that this was Bonique. He never admitted to it and nobody actually figured it out. It was a masquerade, so everybody's in masks. But at any rate, every year around the same time as this glassmaker's ball, people have claimed apparently to see the ghost of this like elegant man walking around Jarvisville um, with the sounds of the, the ball in the background. You know, Bonique is a real person. Um, Deming Jarvis is a real person. All of these people actually existed, but nobody seems to know about this glassmaker's ball. Katie and I made some calls and looked for references from the book. 
but the archivists that Katie spoke with and the curators and historians at the Sandwich Glass Museum couldn't find any records of this story actually being true. I've never witnessed a phantom parade in Sandwich at any time of year. The characters were real people, and the factory existed, although only a cornerstone remains today. But the masked ball, mysterious masked stranger, the phantom parade, they're all as mysterious and ghostly as the nature of the story itself. Cape Cod is an interesting place historically, and I'm sure you can find ghosts everywhere. Some stories aren't valuable for their truth, but the ideas they share, the feelings they leave, and the actions they inspire. For all intents and purposes, the story of the ball isn't true. It's a ghost story. But the ones Joan Tavares Avant tells, to her, aren't just stories. What are we gonna do? Are we gonna get a beating? What is he gonna do to us? They're a way of life. Joan Tavares Avant is a Mashpee Wampanoag elder, historian, and writer. Joan has been telling stories for more than 20 years. And it's evident in the way she tells them that she loves telling stories. She prepared a story for me that has been passed down through the Mashpee Wampanoag since the 1600s. The legend of Granny Squanet. She sure loves traveling through the woods. And believe me, she does not play around. Granny Squanet, the way Joan has told it so many times, lives in the woods. If you've been naughty and not nice, she will take you. The mystery woods where Granny Squanet dwells were pitch black, and for those who do not know Granny Squanet, is an old Wampanoag Indian woman who haunts the Cape Cod woods. And just because she was born in 1600s, don't think she's not here. Her spirit is here in full regalia. Although I had never seen her, the ancient Mashpee grandfathers and grandmothers had seen her both in the woods and in their dreams, like some still do today. Some of them say she is bent and crooked like the trunk of an old tree. There is an eye in the middle of her forehead that gleams. She darts like an ugly bat through the trees and, and hoots like my brother's owl. Granny Squanet has a secret treasure wrapped in the cobwebs of her cave. You don't know if you have to go in there what you're going to see. The story goes that two kids, Greenwater and Little Owl, were determined to find the secret treasure in Granny Squanet's cave. That night we dressed in old one's regalia, except for our sneakers, and we painted our faces with bright colors. They follow a trail along the Mashpee River. We moved quietly, but still the dry leaves scrunched under our sneakers, making us hold our breath and tighten our grip on each other's hand. Even the wind rustling the leaves on the trees caused our hearts to pound in terror. Watch it! Watch out! Watch out! Granny, don't please! Don't take my toe! You're after my toe! No! Don't take my toe! Please, if you take my toe, I won't walk! Suddenly I stumbled over something in the darkness and kicked it. The thing moved in the night. Now what was that? As the children hunt through the woods, Granny Squanet takes their toes one by one. Oh my goodness, that is Granny Squanet's broomstick. What are we going to do? Are we going to get a beating? What is she going to do to us? We did not stop to find out but dashed down the narrow trail 
branches scratching our faces and arms. I hopped and I hopped and I hopped and my foot was hurting and I was saying, Granny, please give me my toes back. Running until our hearts nearly stopped. As Greenwater and Little Owl are running away, they find something in the darkness. Now we bumped into a tree trunk. Hearing something, we looked up. A big red eye glowed from the middle of her forehead, staring straight at us. Her nose was long and pointed, and her teeth hung from her loose lips like fangs. Can you imagine how I wish all my heart that my father, Wise Owl, was with us? Greenwater and Little Owl give Granny Squanet some of their food, and she lets them go. But she did say that she loved fish. She loved frog legs. She loved wow. fried rabbit when people gave it to her. And that was some of our cultural foods, too, that we shared. Granny Squanet doesn't really want to hurt anyone, Joan said. The legend is that she's a medicine woman who's angry that society is sick and hurting. But if anyone finds her broomstick outside of their door, Joan warned that they should leave a basket of food and sweets for Granny Squanet and lock their doors and windows. But watch out. If you think you're safe, I got news for you. Don't forget it. Do you understand what I'm telling you? Or do you want your toes to go? The legend of Granny Squanet is an old one, but some phantoms really lived not too long ago. Many Falmouth residents probably already know the story of the Beebe family, who built what is today Highfield Hall and Gardens. Some of the Beebe children, Pearson, Franklin, and Emily, lived at the hall. Franklin was the last of the family to die in 1932. The hall and the surrounding estate exchanged a few hands before it was restored and turned into a historic estate and cultural center. But for Highfield Hall staff, there's still a lot of life living within the walls. Staff have heard music come on in the middle of the night and seen figures and mirrors that aren't really there. Director of Exhibitions and Interpretation Joanne Ingersoll said there's a wind-up music box on display. On a few occasions, it would just play all by itself. She spent her career at Highfield Hall working with ghosts. I find that very interesting because I think the BBs really loved music. So whether it was them, I don't know. But I feel like in the end, I feel like any of the, the energy that's here is left from them. Part of her work as curator and interpreter is to try and tell the story of the BB family and the people who have lived in or visited the hall. I often stay here very late by myself installing exhibitions. She has had many encounters with things that can't quite be explained. I was in the dining room and it was around, it was dark, or it must have been closer to 9, 9.30. And I heard uh, all kinds of sounds from doors to footsteps. And I knew no one else was here, but the noises most certainly were from inside the house. There's no explanation. She said television programs have come by to investigate, and in 2019, a psychic and paranormal investigator brought a team to the hall with measurement instruments, video cameras, microphones. And during that time, there were some messages and words that came through that I was present for. The psychic on the team sensed a presence. So there was some man that the psychic was observing. An angry man in the basement. He seemed annoyed we were there and annoyed in general, just had a bad attitude, but not dangerous in any way. Joanne said the psychic sensed several presences around the hall that night, 
and some of them were friendlier than others. But despite that, Joanne said she is not afraid of any of these ghosts. I've never felt unsafe or nervous here. Most of the time when Joanne experiences paranormal activity, it isn't a presence like what the psychic felt. It comes to her in the form of smell. I used to smell and I haven't ever since. Joanne frequently had a smell lingering around her office. I think it's only been one or two times since that night that I have had the, the smell that I recognized as a beautiful floral, like perfume smell. And the Cape Cod Psychic gut, uh, however they do it, you know, this impression, this vision um, of a woman there who liked to spend time standing behind me and observing me work and observing me work very hard. She, she wanted to have tea with me, so after that night, we set up a, a tea cup and saucer. And, you know, I, I think I did it once or twice where I would bring up my own teacup and imagine that we were having tea together. I think I did it once or twice. While we were up there, um, we were able to communicate, like, why are you still here? Mm -hmm. How are you here? Why are you here? And apparently she came here as a guest and um, she was beautiful, and she was dressed in beautiful clothing, and she was here maybe as a singer or as an entertainer. And why are you still here? Why are you still here? And that's still very, we don't know. Joanne never figured out why the woman was around, but she thinks she knows why the other ghost is haunting her. This one with a slightly less pretty smell. I'm doing research on um, the BB archives. She does that a few hours a week. I'm looking at files that really have never been researched on respondents, on all kinds of things. And she happened upon a new story. And I was discovering a couple of, you know, the activities of E. Pearson. E. Pearson was the, the son of the man who made all the money for the, the family, and he's the one who built this house with his widowed mother. Pearson was one of the BB's sons, Franklin and Emily's older brother, and he was in charge of the family business. Very hard worker. I'm getting this impression all along with the research, like yeah. amazingly hardworking and actually very talented at making money. In her research, she started to uncover a pattern. Ooh, there's some inequality going on here. That tension was between the brothers, Franklin and Pearson. She said that around the year 1900, Pearson was forced to leave the hall and move down the hill to Shore Road. And as I'm reading this, I'm getting some suspicions that, you know, that he was forced out for whatever reason. And shortly after that, within a day or less, the smell of cigarettes seemed to follow me wherever I went. She was in the office at the hall when she first smelled cigarettes. She checked outside, inside, all around the estate, and couldn't find anyone who was smoking. Ask other people in the office upstairs, do you guys smell smoke? Nobody can smell smoke. All right, I just drop it. And, uh, and then I'm driving home. This is going on for weeks and weeks. And I'm in the car all by myself. I smell smoke. There's no car in front of me, behind me. I'm in my house, sitting on the sofa. I smell smoke. Nobody else in my family smells smoke. The next visit to the archive, some, um, I pull out a box that has two actual cigarettes in it that are from the 19th century and they are English and they are part of the E. Pearson box of his belongings. I don't know why anybody would have saved two cigarettes. So I'm just like, okay. That smell has been around me here in this house and not even in this house for over a year. She said she asked the ghost, assuming it is Pearson, to leave her alone and for a while the smell did go away. 
one of my least favorite smells on earth is cigarettes, <laughs> especially old stale cigarette. Just recently I smell it again. She said she thinks Pearson is around maybe smoking his cigarettes in her office because there's a part of his story that hasn't been told yet. Unfinished business. Pearson had the home built and acquired a lot of the acreage of the estate. And so maybe he had some attachments here, either in the town or to the house. As she continues her research, she can only guess for now why a ghost might be lingering and what story might need to be uncovered. I'm thinking like there is more of a story to be told or more of a story to be found out about the BBs that people don't know about. While Joanne researches and discovers an old story, a new one is unfolding in Bourne. Do not go in the water, witches, you will melt! <laughs> Something wicked gathered at the Grey Gables Beach in Bourne on October 22nd. Witch hats bobbed in the setting sun, and over the sound of spooky music were compliments on the long skirts swishing in the sand. And of course, there were brooms galore. Contrary to popular belief, these witches gathered in the name of good. We're going to walk through the neighborhood a little bit. We're going to end up at the lobster trap down the road where we're going to have a reception. Uh, we've got some more d'oeuvres, cash bar. Uh, we've got live music and lots of witches. This is Janine Aversing, president of the Grey Gables Gals. Together with treasurer Carrie Spinelli and secretary Rhonda D. Jones Toby, the Gals formed a nonprofit and a neighborhood walking group of witches. Last year was our first annual, and it was just within Grey Gables, just our neighborhood. And we decided we wanted to make it bigger, so we went nonprofit. Uh, we wanted to help some different charities in the greater Bourne area, and we we advertised, and this is how you know. It got so big. A coven of more than 50 witches gathered at the Grey Gables Beach in Bourne, walking together for charity. This year, the second annual Grey Gables Witches Walk proceeds went to Kind Hearts for Kids. We said, let's have some fun with it. Mm -hmm. And uh, especially this year, we said, let's, you know, let's have fun for a good cause. There's a history with witch walks in Massachusetts, like this one. We love October. I love Salem. And we had heard of other witches walk walks around. They're all over the place. So we thought, why not right here in the Gables? Everyone knows the stories of the witches in Salem, but no doubt there will be talk of the ones on Cape Cod in the days to come. Today's program was written, hosted, and produced by me, Noelle Ananen. I want to thank everyone who helped with today's episode. Joan Tavares Avant, Joanne Ingersoll and Highfield Hall and Garden staff, and Janine Aversing and the Great Gables Gals. Shout out to our executive editor, John Paradise, and our sandwich reporter, Katie Goers, for their help on this episode as well. The Upper Cape Catch comes out every Friday, just like our newspaper. Check us out online at capenews.net or find us at your favorite local business. We also have an app that is free to download on the App Store and Google Play. Thank you for listening, happy Halloween, and we'll see you next time on The Upper Cape Catch. <laughs>